God, we thank you for your love. Thank you for technology. We pray that you would help us to figure it out and get it under control. Um, thank you for your people, for this building, for your word. And God, thank you for the, the truth that lies within it, for uh, the, the joy that we have in you. God, thank you for, uh, for loving us, for caring for us, and we pray that you would be lifted up in our hearts and in our lives. For this in your name, amen. All right. So, that's still ringing. I don't know what that is. Joseph is on the hunt. There we go. Let's do a little bit of review and see where we've been. Yeah? I sat down my wireless for a second. Whatever you guys want. You hook it up and I'll put it on if you want me to. I'll just keep talking. All right, so let's go back and do a little bit of review and see how Jesus has been received up until this point. I'm going to put you guys to work this morning, and there's not many of you to work, so we have to work together. Let's go back and work our way through the gospel up until this point and see how it is that Jesus was received by the Pharisees, by his family, by the scribes, by the Gerasenians, by the mourners, by the Nazarenes, and by Herod. Are you laughing at me because I made up that word? <laughs> it sounds pretty one-sided. It is quite one-sided, yes. Yeah, I was looking for the, the proper way to say the Gerasenes or the people from Gerasen, and that's what I came up with. That's what I made up. <laughs> All right, so let's go back and, again, do this little bit of, as Jerry said, one-sided review. Um, in Mark 3, 6, how was Jesus received by the Pharisees? Who's got that verse for us? I told you guys you're going to have to work. I'm putting you to work this morning. All right, I'll get 3, 6. You guys grab those next ones. Mark 3, 6 says, The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him, against Jesus, as to how they might destroy him. That is quite extreme, right? So the Pharisees, pretty, pretty soon, just chapter 3, are already looking at how they might destroy Jesus. Should I try this again? Oh, yeah. All right, what about 3-2? Who's got 3-2? How Jesus' family responded to him. They did think he was crazy. Yeah, 321. Did I say 3-2? I did. Who can read that verse for us? Mark 3, 21. Yeah. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. All right. So, so far, just looking at the Pharisees and his family, the Pharisees wanted to kill him, and his family, the people closest to him, his own people, thought he was nuts, right? Uh, not a good reception so far. What about 322, the very next verse, the scribes? What's that say? The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul and he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. All right. Not only is he crazy, he is working for Satan, right? Under the, the guise and the power of Satan. Jumping forward a couple of chapters, the Gerasenians, chapter 5, verse 17. How did they embrace Christ after he came and cast the legion demons out of the man? 
Yeah, they, they didn't even want to put up with him. They said, you need to get out of here. They implored him to leave their region altogether. So these are a lot of bad receptions of Christ, right? The almighty, infinite creator of all things steps into his creation, takes on flesh, and this is how he's received. He is uh, sought to be murdered. They wanted to destroy him. His family thought he was nuts. They said he was doing these things by the power of Satan. They said, just get up out of here and leave, right? Um, A couple weeks ago, we saw in chapter 6, verse 3, that even his own uh, countrymen in in Nazareth didn't receive him. It says in 6.3, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. He's just a normal, every day, regular old Joe. He's just a carpenter. And they were offended that he thought he was all hot and uh, worthy of this, this praise and this following. They also took offense at him and didn't want him there. And then last week we took a look at Herod. How did Herod receive Christ in 6.16? What does that verse say? Who did Herod take Christ to be? John. He thought he was John the Baptist. So he didn't embrace Christ, right? We talked about how he uh, kind of tasted of the, the truth of the gospel, how he flirted with the truth of the gospel. He liked to hear these things that John had to proclaim, even though John was pretty blunt in telling him that he was sinful and he needed to repent. But ultimately, he didn't embrace the, the truth or Christ as the truth. All right. And Jerry said that those are all quite one-sided. Let's take a look at another set of one-sided responses and see how he was perceived by John the Baptist, by the fishermen, by the Capernaum Jews, the paralytic, the demoniac, and the girl. So let's jump back and look at these verses. Again, just by way of review to see what people have done with Jesus, the, the one who came into the world. I'll start off by reading Mark 1, 7 says that he was preaching and saying, this is John the Baptist preaching, saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. So John the Baptist understood his role as the forerunner, that he wanted to to lift up Christ, that Christ was coming and he was superior to John. John wasn't the Messiah, but he was there to pronounce the Messiah, that the Messiah might increase and he, John, might decrease. What about the fishermen in John or Mark 1, verses 18 and 20? How did they receive Christ? They immediately followed him. Yeah, right away, right? He said, drop your nets, drop all your stuff, leave this behind and follow after me. And that's exactly what they did. Uh, in 20, it says, immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. And one of the synoptics, Matthew or Luke, says that uh, Simon left everything behind. So all of his stuff, his, um, likely his business, all of it he left behind so that he could follow after Christ. Kind of a, a different response from that first set of people we looked at, right? Uh, what about the Capernaum Jews in verses 27 and 28? What was their response to Jesus? 
They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. All right, so they were amazed by him. Amazed enough that they were um, going and, and talking about him and news about him spread. Amazed enough that they realize that he has a different authority. He's set apart from the scribes. He's not just like all these other teachers who are citing these other rabbis or these other rabbinical schools and uh, showing their de degrees that they got from such and such university. No, he's got his own authority and he's speaking with his own authority. Um, jumping forward to chapter 2, the paralytic in verse 12, we saw that he got up immediately, grabbed his pallet, and he went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and they were glorifying God. So I understand him to be a part of that group who was amazed and who was glorifying God, being the, the source of this miracle. And not only was he amazed and glorifying God, but he was spurring other people on to glorify God along with him. Um, the demoniac we see in chapter 5. What, are we, what do we read about him in verses 18 through 20 of Mark chapter 5? How did he respond to Christ? Well, he asked if you could go with him to follow him. Yeah. He wanted to leave his, his hometown. He wanted to go with Jesus and get on the boat. Once again, uh, Jesus was told, we don't even want you here. We want you to, to leave and be gone. Uh, the demoniac said, no, I want to I be with you. The, the former demoniac, rather. This man who was uh, dispossessed of these demons wanted to be with Christ. And he ended up going on and proclaiming Christ in all the Decapolis, these ten cities. And um, we took a, a glance forward and we saw that next time we see the mention of the Decapolis, it seems like people are already aware of who Jesus is. They're bringing sick and uh, people who are demon-possessed to Christ so that he can cast them out. So it seems like he had a pretty fruitful ministry. And then, again, we looked not too long ago at uh, the little girl, the 12-year-old girl that Jesus healed. And we see down towards the end of chapter 5 that uh, immediately the girl got up, she began to walk, and they were all completely astounded. Again, I think she has to be understood as being a part of that group who was astounded at the, the miracle, the power, the authority of Christ. So we have these two different groups of people, and it's not a, a clean-cut group or division, because I think there are definitely people within probably both groups who are still kind of investigating, and they're still interested. They haven't quite made a decision for Christ, and yet um, we have two very distinct, different responses of Jesus and his ministry up until this point. And we'll want to take that into consideration as we approach our text today. We're going to be in uh, Mark chapter 6. And we'll start off by looking in verses 30 through 32 at the disciples' return. Now remember that the disciples had been out preaching. And Jerry taught on this a couple weeks ago about how Jesus sent out the 12 uh, to, to go out and to preach back in uh, verses 7 through 13 of Mark 6, so I'll go ahead and read verses 12 and 13. It says that they went out and they preached that men should repent. Just like John the Baptist preached, just like Jesus preached, that was their message, preaching that men should repent. 
and they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Now, we jump forward to verse 30, and they're getting back. We took a little bit of a break to talk about uh, John the Baptist and Herod, and uh, Mark wanted to introduce that story. Now we're coming back to the, the second part of this Markian sandwich, right? We've seen Mark do this a, a couple of times now, where he introduces one uh, teaching, one aspect, and then he goes on to something else, and he returns to it later. Well, he's doing that same thing here with the disciples returning. In verses 30 through 32, says that the apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that had that they had done and taught while they were on this little missionary journey. Verse 31, And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. So they returned, and now they're bringing their report to Jesus about their time away on this uh, preaching journey, this little missionary preaching journey that Jesus had sent them out on. Now, we've talked before about how Mark doesn't give uh, a chronological uh, series of events for Jesus' ministry. Not all these things are, are taking place in chronological order. However, the synoptics, Matthew and Luke, they also present this return of the disciples right after um, Jesus hearing about John the Baptist and his death, his beheading. And so I think that this is likely the, the order that's happened in since all the synoptics reported it that way. Uh, Luke, in Luke chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, he says, well, it says that Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him, to Jesus, and all that they had done, taking them with him. He withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. So Luke says, okay, well, there was this incident with John and Herod, and then the disciples returned, and Jesus took them uh, to withdraw. Matthew says a, a similar thing. Matthew 14, 12, and 13 his disciples came and took away the body and buried it. And they went and reported to Jesus. Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. So we see uh, two reasons for this retreat that Jesus takes with his disciples. One that is from the text from Mark and then one from these parallel passages. So we see that he took them, uh, one, in, in order to rest, and then two, in order to grieve. So they had been on this long journey, and Jesus says, or the text says here, that the apostles gathered with Jesus, they reported to him all that had happened, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. So he wanted them to get some rest. But taking into account the fact that they had just barely heard about John the Baptist, and uh, the accounts from Luke and Matthew saying that Jesus was grieved and he gathered the disciples with him and he said, let's, let's go away for a while. They were going away to rest and also to grieve. And perhaps we could even throw in a, a third reason to debrief their, their missionary experience, what all had happened. Uh, we see that um, right here in verse 30 of Mark 6, that they reported to him all that they had done and taught. 
So they're going off on this uh, little retreat, so to speak, so that they can do these three things to, to rest, to grieve, and to debrief. And it says in verse 31 that they didn't even have time to eat. What can we gather from this phrase? Mark 6, 31, they, they didn't have time to eat. What does that tell us? Busy. Yeah, they were quite busy. What were they busy doing? Spreading the word. They were busy spreading the word. The disciples were very hard at work fulfilling their calling, doing exactly what Jesus had told them. He had sent them out, and they had gone out and completed this mission. They came back, and even when they came back, they found that this ministry was still awaiting them, that they were still uh, busy and even unable to sit down and really have a meal together. Um, We know from other passages that their their missionary trip, their little journey that they went on, it came with persecution. It wasn't uh, an easygoing trip. It wasn't all sunshine and, and lollipops, right? If you guys have ever been out witnessing or sharing the gospel, or even within your own family, you know that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Not everybody is going to receive the truth of the gospel with open arms, and they certainly didn't with these disciples who Jesus had sent out. Let's read from Matthew 10. <clears throat> Matthew 10, I'll start in verse 16. And Matthew says about this journey after Jesus had sent them out um, a, a sister passage to Mark 6, 7 through 13. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But they, but when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child. A child will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is not. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. And so we see there um, some advice for that particular journey, as well as uh, how they are to conduct themselves going forward, and I think even into end times, we can gather some stuff from that passage. But we know that they faced persecution. They went out, and uh, it was costly for these disciples to go out and to preach the word, to fulfill the the work of their calling that Jesus had for them. And um, they come back and they realize just how costly it could be when they hear about John and the fact that it cost John his, his head to, to preach this message of truth. Yes? So the passage just read where it says until the Son of Man comes, I guess, is that talking about the end times? Yes. So yeah. they, will, they will preach into, like, throughout all of Israel? Yeah. Yeah, so that, that went a little bit further. But yeah, that's looking into the end times. Does that mean that like, there's still parts of Israel that need to be reached? Yeah. Yeah. Not 
Yeah, not until the... Always. Jesus won't come back until the, the fullness of the Gentiles, we know from Luke. But, um, yes, then Israel will become part of a, a more centralized part of God's program. God is still involved with Israel now, but not to the extent that he will be um, in the tribulation period and once the, the church is taken up. But, yeah, we're going to be going through that a little bit this not this Wednesday the, the following Wednesday we'll get into timelines and some eschatology stuff that'll be fun Christian, Christians still get mixed reactions in Israel oh yeah a lot, I mean, a lot of the Jews hate the Christians yep and some of them tolerate us <laughs> <laughs> yeah Amen. Some, some will even speak and discuss with them but yeah, Christians aren't respected per se. Yeah. It's hard to accept, or it's hard to reject Jesus, which they do generally, without rejecting Jesus' followers. Yep. Yeah, Jesus said that, right? They hated me. They're going to hate you all the more. Don't expect that you being a, a student, you being a a follower are going to be better received than the teacher, than the master. They crucified our Lord. We shouldn't expect more for ourselves, right? And that's what the, the disciples were learning. They're starting to realize this. They had just gone out on this journey. They had had a, a taste of persecution. They come back and realized John, the, the great John the Baptist, right? He was, um, he had come to fame before Christ came to fame. He was preaching and in the same circuits that Jesus was preaching in. Now he was dead. And they're just realizing this and, and hearing about this for the first time. And yet, all the while, people are still coming to them. And there's still this crowd formed around them. There's still this expectation of ministry, to continue in ministry. And the reality that ministry is nonstop. And um, we see <clears throat> that outreach and rest should both be organized and planned. We go back, we remember that they went out with a purpose, right? They went out intentionally. They went out pre-planned. Jesus had told them, you're to go out. You're to go out two by two. You're to go out in this manner. This is what you're to do while you go out. And they did go out and they preached uh, a message of repentance. And then notice here in verse 30 that they all showed up at the same time. The apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done. Remember, they were all out on their own uh you know, group. They had their, their six groups and they all managed to, to come back at the same time. They brought a report back and they sat down and they debriefed with their master. Have you guys ever done that? Gone out on uh, a missionary journey, a short-term mission project, or even just a, an evangelistic outing and then sat down to debrief and talk about it afterwards. Okay, well, what did we do well? What could we do better? Uh, what were some of the results? Some of the people we talked to, let's get names from people that that you had encounters with so we could keep praying with them and, and return with them i'm sure this is what they were doing during their debriefing process um, they had all this plan this seemed like a, a well-organized ministry experience and then notice that jesus here is scheduling and, and planning a time to rest and recuperate this is also important right to to take time to um, to 
to fill your cup up again so that you can go out and uh, love on other people. And this is not true just in a, a ministry setting, but uh, on, on the daily, right? This is what God had established in the, the giving of the Sabbath. And we know that we're not under the law of the Sabbath, but we'd still do well to follow the, the principles of Sabbath rest, to take rest, to not uh, be burning the candle at, at both ends, that we would take time to slow down. And that's what Jesus is suggesting for them. Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. He wanted them to get a little bit of downtime. And just two points of clarification I want to offer, that we are all called to preach the gospel, aren't we? This isn't just something that was for the disciples. They were sent out in a a special, unique way. However, this is something that we are all called to do. What is that that passage there that I put up? Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the, the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me in heaven on earth, and what? We go forward with all the nations. Yes. Go preach repentance in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. In making disciples. Good. Yep. Go make disciples, baptize, and He will be with us. Right. That is a a universal uh, commission. That is the commission for the church, not just for the twelve. And we need to embrace that as our own mission as well. And then secondly, we shouldn't wait for organized outreach. Organized outreach is a a great thing, and it is good and important to organize outreach and to plan for outreach, just as it seems Jesus and his disciples did. Again, this was seemed like a a pretty well-thought-out, planned ministry, right? They were going to go out two by two. They were going to do these things. They were going to come back together, debrief. That's good. However, we don't want to wait for those things. Second uh, Timothy four two says to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort, and uh, to do so with great patience and instruction. That is the calling of the Christian to be ready at all times to share the truth of the gospel. It's a, a truth that should be wonderful to us. It's a truth that we, as Christians, if we have truly been born again, we should know and be able to proclaim to others. All right, let's look at verses 33 and 34, the, the flexibility of ministry. Mark 6, 33 says, The people saw them going, and many recognized them, and ran there together on foot from all the cities, and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to, began to teach them many things. And so we see that Jesus has this, this little retreat organized and planned for his 12 disciples. And it's meant particularly for his disciples so they could get rest, so that they could grieve the, the loss of John the Baptist, so they could debrief together. Uh, and yet they show up to their destination. They find that their retreat is being crashed by the very people that they were just trying to avoid, right? They got there. They had realized this is busy. That We don't want to get here. We want to leave. and We want to retreat. And they got there and they are bombarded by these very people. Um, They had raced there apparently and and beat them there somehow. The disciples and Jesus went by boat. These guys ran by foot. Uh, It's kind of like when you're at the grocery store and you see the the checkout line that's short and you're like racing that other person and you want to get there first, right? Well, the disciples and Jesus, they, they lost. These other people, they were already there waiting for them. And rather than 
get angry and leave or rebuke the crowd, we see that Jesus shows great compassion to the large crowd, to these retreat crashers who are kind of ruining Jesus' plan to, to get away and to rest and to be quiet and to grieve and to debrief. Jesus had this whole retreat planned out and these guys weren't having any of it. But Jesus shows them compassion. He shows them love. Um, he gives us an example. He gives us a template to follow that we must be flexible in our ministry, that we have to realize that things don't always go as, as we plan, that we can make plans and we would do well to make plans. However, we need to be flexible in our ministry. Uh, somebody, remind me, what is Mark ten forty five? Amen. The Son of Man came to be served, or to serve and not to be served, right? To give his life as a ransom for many. Good. That is his purpose. That is why Jesus came. And we see that demonstrated here so beautifully. That even in this time where he just wants a little bit of rest, he wants rest for his, his men, his, his boys, um, they, they can't find it. And Jesus still shows them love and compassion. And as I was reading in Mark uh, 6.32, I was reminded of Luke 6.32 that says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that for you? For even sinners love those who love them. And just a couple of verses before that, in Mark 6.30 it says this, says, give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. And we can't just relegate this to material things, to, to money, but this includes our time. This includes our, our energy. This includes our convenience. That uh, when we are engaging in, in ministering, when we are engaging in just Christian life, to, to be a Christian is to love, right? They will know that we are Christians by our love. It means to, to give up our, our comfort, to give up our time and our energy, um, to be willing and able to, to love others. Love is a willingness to be inconvenienced. Love isn't always convenient, right? And um, we need to to love on others. Love bears all things, doesn't it? First Corinthians 13 says that love bears all things. And we know that Jesus accepted and embraced this crowd. Luke 9.11 says that the crowds were aware of this, of where he was going. They followed him, and he welcomed them. And then he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. So Mark doesn't really go into the the healing aspect, but of course Luke the physician says, oh yeah, he was doing that too. He was uh, playing doctor, right? Jesus the doctor. Uh, But he was preaching the kingdom, healing them, and he welcomed them. That just kind of blows my mind because he was trying to avoid them initially, which is good and right and okay. But then it got to the point where he was... um, he was confronted with them again, and he embraced them and, and loved on them. It's kind of interesting that now healing just become a, it's not a big deal anymore. It's just accepted if he does that. Yeah. They don't dwell on it. It's just, yep. now he healed Oh, it's just Jesus the healer. Yeah. <laughs> just kind of commonplace. What does our, our text say about his willingness to be inconvenienced? Why was he willing to be inconvenienced? In verse 34. Yeah, he had compassion. Why did he have compassion on them? Because they have no shepherd. 
Yeah, they were like sheep without a shepherd, right? And Jesus realized that. Jesus, the good shepherd, realized these, these sheep have no shepherd. They don't have anybody who's leading them, who's leading them spiritually and taking care of them. This verse 34 is an indictment against the spiritual leaders that the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these people who were supposed to be leading them spiritually, they, they had failed. And Jesus was calling them out and saying, you guys don't have a shepherd. Your shepherds are, are long gone. They are, um, they're not even sheep themselves. They're, they're wolves, right? Uh, let's look up these verses. Can I get somebody to look up that passage in Ezekiel 34? And I'll grab Jeremiah 50, verse 6. Uh, these are Old Testament references talking about how God viewed Israel as a, a flock of sheep whose shepherds, their worldly shepherds, had abandoned and failed them. Jeremiah 50, verse 6 says, My people have become lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. They have made them turn aside on the mountains. They have gone along from mountain to hill and have forgotten their resting place. All who came upon them have devoured them. So, Again, this is an indictment against the, the spiritual leaders. God was saying, my people, they were lost sheep. Their shepherds were nowhere to be found. Ezekiel 34, 2 through 5. Who's got that? Good. It says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Do not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. Ouch. Did you guys catch that? When... God said, woe to the shepherds who were doing what? What were the shepherds doing? They, yeah, they were feeding themselves. They weren't feeding the sheep. They weren't tending the sheep or caring for the sheep or loving on the sheep. They weren't doing any of the things that the shepherds were supposed to be doing. And God called them out for it. He said, woe to you shepherds. Right? You guys are going to face a, a greater judgment because you guys are to be caring for these sheep. You guys are the ones who are going to give an account for these sheep. And God calls him out and says, woe to you. You guys need to watch out. And now here we get to Mark 6. And Jesus had compassion on these people who were running all over looking for him because he realized that they are sheep without a shepherd. So they don't have these spiritual leaders who are taking and, and loving and caring on them. And he, again, being the good shepherd, steps in and says, all right, I'll, I'll teach you. I'll share with you the, the truth of the kingdom of the gospel. I'll heal you and take care of your diseases and infirmities and show love and compassion to you. Even though I'm trying to get some rest and retreat, uh, this supersedes that. And Jesus was willing to love on and care for them. All right, let's continue on. Let's look at verses 35 through 44, the biggest chunk of our passage. Mark 6, 35. says, When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate, and it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go look. 
And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up twelve full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. There were, all, there were five thousand men who ate the loaves. That's a lot, a lot going on there, right? A lot happening. Uh, going back to verse 35, it says when it was already quite late. Uh, it's talking about the, the evening time. This would have been early evening. That's what Matthew says in Matthew 14, 15, that it was evening. So it was between uh, 3 to 6 p.m., just before sunset. And these things were, were taking place. And they were realizing that they didn't have any food. They had this big, huge crowd of people, and they were all hungry. And remember that the disciples themselves, back in verse 31, they were already quite hungry, right? Because they didn't have time to, to sit down and eat. And so the disciples coming up to Jesus, surely they had themselves in mind a little bit when they said, everybody is, is hungry. All the people are hungry. And there's no food around, no place to go. And they came and brought this problem to Jesus, um, saying they needed to, to buy food because they were in this, this desolate place. Um, does anybody have a, a King James? You have your King James here? What's your King James say in, what is it, 35? Read Mark 6, 35 for us, yeah. It says, uh, And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. All right, so in the King James, it calls it a, a desert place. Um, my Nasby says desolate. Desert probably isn't the, the best translation or, or barren. It's not talking about a, a barren desert-like place. Remember, they were eating on green grass, we see down in 39, but rather it refers to an, an isolated place, or the NIV says a remote place. So it's a place that's far off, not near any other food, not near uh, any uh, stores or, or food sources. They were out in the middle of nowhere in this remote place. But again, they were uh, sitting on, on green grass. Um, Mark actually uh, isn't the only one to mention the fact that they're sitting on green grass. Um, John talks about that also. And uh, remember that Mark isn't necessarily one to just use flowery, flowery language to kind of make things pretty and, and puffed up. Mark is... He's on a mission, right? He's going from one thing to the next, immediately, immediately, immediately. So it's likely that he mentions the fact that they're sitting on this green grass um, to allude to the time of year that it is, that it's the, the springtime. Um, and it's, in fact, John 6, 4 says that it was coming up on Passover. He says that um, Passover, the, the feast of the Jews, was near. Let's see. I'm not clicking my buttons here. So John 6, 4 says that Passover was near. It was right around the corner. And so uh, that's also likely why all these great crowds of people were there because Passover was right around the corner and they were getting ready for this Passover event to take place. So there's all kinds of people there. Uh, how many people does our text say was there? 
5,000 men. 5,000 men. So um, that's aside from women and children, right? Uh, Matthew makes that explicit. Matthew 14.21 says that there were 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. Uh, remember that it was actually a, a child who came up and told or gave and offered his meal for, for everybody else to have. Um, so it's more likely they had 20,000 or so there. That's a lot of people. Uh, you guys ever seen 20,000 of anything? You guys ever played that game with your spouse or significant other where you say, I love you more. No, I love you more. I love you the most. You ever played that? Brittany and I do that because we're just dumb dorks, I guess. <laughs> but when we were dating, we were doing that, and I told her, no, I love you more. And she said, well, prove it. And I said, okay, well, how? And she said, give me 10,000 gummy bears. And so I did several months later. And the 10,000 gummy, that's a lot of gummy bears. It covered her entire room, like, completely. Um, there were gummy bears lost all over the place for a long time. So 10,000 is a lot. And they had 20,000 men and women and children who were there, likely, um, roundabouts that Jesus fed with just five loaves and, and two fish. And since I couldn't bring 20,000 gummy bears, I brought uh, pennies instead. But that's only 1,000 pennies. So, And pennies are tiny, right? And they had maybe 20,000 men, women, and children. And Jesus didn't even think about it, right? He fed them without... Uh, losing any sleep without losing any of his strength or any of his power. He just multiplied this, these loaves and these fish. And the disciples, they were freaking out, right? They said, I don't know what we're going to do. 200 denarii. Denarii is one day's wage. So they said, seven, eight months worth of wages isn't enough to even feed these guys a little bit, let alone to satisfy their hunger. And they had no idea what they were going to do. But Jesus said, it's okay. I, I got this, right? Uh, Jesus wasn't at all overwhelmed by the, the massive amount of people that were there. And in terms of scope, this really was large, Jesus' largest and, and most extensive miracle that he performed. Uh, just imagine those 20,000 people going from there and, and retelling their experience how they were in this desolate, isolated place. And they had no food. There weren't any food trucks there, right? There was no... Um, caterers, and they just sat down and, and poof, they had this bread and this fish magically. Uh, I wonder if it was warm, actually. Jesus making this fish, I wonder what, what kind of form it was in. And um, I'm sure it was the, the best fish that they had ever had, right? Remember the, the wine the, that Jesus made, and he delivered it to the, the master of the wedding, and he said, you're supposed to bring the, the good wine out first, and then bring out the bad wine. But he tasted Jesus' wine and he said, this is, this is good stuff. This is amazing, right? So uh, you guys have read through this dozens of times, I'm sure. You guys have been through many sermons talking on the feeding of the 5,000, many different Bible studies. So I'm going to let you guys teach me for a minute. What else can we pull out of this passage that we can learn from, that we can apply to our lives? How does this message of Jesus feeding these 5,000 affect us? What do we see in these verses that we can glean? Jesus is God. He's he's supernaturally creating bread and fish. 
I've been in a group of 10,000 at the division change of command ceremony. And you have trucks and trucks and trucks and trucks that are feeding these guys. So it's Jesus is God. Amen. Jesus is God. Good. What else? Just the, the amazing amount of, of love and compassion and strength that Jesus had hmm. in this particular instance. Um, I, I've been in that place before where you're just tired and you were supposed to get a break um, from dealing with people and then all of a sudden it just breaks loose and now you're absolutely swamped and my first reaction is I'm a very whiny person. So <laughs> I, uh, I tend to grumble and I, I tend to complain and um, you can kind of see the exasperation of the disciples' voices. Mm -hmm. Jesus is like you feel. Yep. <laughs> and uh, just he takes a moment to not only teach the disciples but also teach the crowd and instead of getting grumbly or complaining, instead he has compassion in that moment. Amen. Which is just crazy. Yep. Yeah, it's. We can all probably realize what it's like to be in that place. We're just like, I'm done. I, I want to get away. I want to rest. And yeah, that, that compassion that shines through. And uh, yeah, again, love is willing to be inconvenienced. So between those two things, Andy pointing out the, the deity of Christ, him being able to perform this miracle, and uh, Sam pointing out the, the compassion and the love of Christ. I uh, have to read to you Isaiah 57:15, that brings these two concepts together and really in this one verse boils down the, um, the, the transcendence of God that he is above all and yet the eminence that he has become like us. It says, Isaiah 57:15, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and the lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the con contrite. That is our God. That is Jesus who is high and holy and yet contrite and lowly. Uh, what a great contrast. What else do we see in this passage? What else can we learn and glean from this this one miracle that is in all four Gospels, other than the, the resurrection of Christ. This is the only miracle that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record. What else do we see in here? Well, considering they had just come back from their expedition of healing and casting out demons, it's really interesting that Jesus countered their comment with, you give them something. <laughs> mm -hmm. They had no faith to do that. Apparently, it didn't occur to them, even after their experience. Mm -hmm. That wasn't one of the miracles they had done before. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just the scope and the size of 20,000 people, yeah, that didn't even enter their mind. How? What do you mean, us feed them? How are we to feed them? And I think that's kind of our, our default mindset, especially now in the, the 21st century, especially our us younger people, right? Um, our generation is like, well, somebody else will do it for me, right? The, the government, they'll take care of it. Or uh, my employer or somebody else, they, they can fulfill this need uh, for me or for somebody else. Um, we live in more of a, a socialistic type society where it's 
like somebody else is going to take care of it. Uh, I'm not taking responsibility. I'm not going to see this need and, and meet this need. But Jesus said, no, you, you do it. And just to kind of give them that perspective for a while and to get them in that place of realizing, I can't. This is beyond me, right? Um, John really points this out in uh, his gospel when he's talking to, to Philip. And he actually, in that section, he suggests to Philip um, that he goes in and feeds them. Um, let's see. This he was saying, well, I'll go back a little bit. Therefore, Jesus lifting up his eyes and seeing what a large crowd was coming to him, he said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. And then Philip answered, 200 denarii, that's not enough. Um, so Jesus was testing him and, and getting him to realize that we can't do this. And yet, all the while, they had Jesus, the, the Lord of creation, sitting right there. And they didn't even think, well, maybe, maybe Jesus could do something, right? But Jesus is teaching them and, and molding them, um, realizing that he's going to leave them pretty shortly, right? Anything else we see here? Well, there's 12 of them, so that means each one of them probably had over a thousand people to distribute food to. Mm -hmm. That in itself would be daunting. <laughs> yes. How do, you, how do you go about I mean, I know they set them down in companies and, you know, 250s. Yeah. But uh, even still. It still would be daunting for sure. But, yeah, think about... How long would it take you to serve a thousand people? It would be a while. Yeah, as Andy <laughs> mentioned, with his group of 10,000 people, they had trucks and a very organized event. But Jesus took this crowd of 20,000 people that just showed up at his retreat place, <laughs> and he took this disorganized crowd, and he organized them. He said, you guys sit here, you sit here. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. And if it was just one person feeding 20,000 by himself, that would be quite difficult. But Jesus does delegate. He has his 12 disciples, and I wouldn't be surprised if he had them delegate as well and say, okay, well, you're going to help me with this section, you're going to help me with this section, so we can get a, a lesson in uh, the, the benefit of, of delegating responsibilities as well. Uh, look with me at verse 42. <clears throat> 42 talks about how they were all satisfied. They ate, and all of them were satisfied. Remember, Philip said, in 200 denarii, that's enough not enough to even give them a little bit of a snack. But Jesus satisfied them. They even had leftovers, right? They had a, a basket for each one of those disciples to carry of, of leftovers. Um, let's look at this quote here from John MacArthur. He says, The word translated satisfied derives its meaning from the world of animal husbandry and describes livestock eating until they are completely full. Thus it speaks of being gratified to the point of not wanting any more. Jesus uses this same word in the Beatitudes to promise those who hunger and thirst for righteousness that they shall be satisfied, completely full, as full as an animal gets when he has uh, access to however much food is available. Now, um, they were so satisfied, right? That's what this word says. They ate and they were satisfied. Let's jump over to... Um, I guess where we just were, where I just was, in John chapter 6. Look at John's, how John wraps up this section. John six, fourteen, and 15. It says that 
Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, this feeding of the 5,000, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force and to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So these people who just ate this food, they were so satisfied that they wanted to make Jesus king. That's how satisfied they were with this miracle. Not just because it was, again, really good fish and really good bread, which I'm sure it was, but remember back in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, Moses said that the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. And so I'm sure that these people were realizing this, this has got to be that prophet. This has got to be the son of David. And this, this Messiah, he's different. He's unique. There's something special about him. And they sought to take him by force and to make him king. And Jesus, knowing that his hour had not yet come, he withdrew there to another secluded place. But what's really wild and amazing about all of this is just that the, the very next day, this same group of people ended up rejecting Jesus. They, they turned their back on their king, on the Messiah who just fed them, who they were ready to, to take and make king. And do you think Jesus was surprised by this, that they were turning their backs on him? Not at all, right? Jesus knew all along. If you're still in John 6, let's jump down to verse 44. And Jesus, or 64 rather, um, Jesus says, But there were some of you who do not believe. There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. This is just the next day. Some of his disciples, these same ones who were there, wanting to make him king, they withdrew from Jesus. Uh, the, the same ones that he had just been so gen- generous to with his time. Um, the bulk of these disciples were wanting to, to leave Jesus. So he was generous with his time. He, he gave them his retreat time that he had set aside for his disciples uh, he was loving and compassionate to them, realizing that they were sheep without a shepherd. He was teaching rather than relaxing. He was making them food rather than eating food himself. He was caring for them rather than taking the time to grieve the loss of his buddy, John the Baptist. And they turned their backs on him. They didn't want anything to do with him. Um, these people responded in much the same way as Herod responded to the truth that John the Baptist preached to him. They, they tasted it. They had a little bit of it. Um, they, they flirted with the truth, but they didn't really embrace it. They, they tolerated the truth rather than submitting to the truth, rather than embracing the, the capital T truth who was there loving on them, showing them both his deity and his compassion, his mercy. And... They weren't having any of it. And just like the, the people that we looked at at the, the beginning of our, our study in the review, um, many of them rejected Christ. Just like all those other people who rejected Christ who said, he's just doing the work of Satan. He's just crazy. He's nuts. Uh, you can go back to the, uh, the C.S. Lewis quote, right? He's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. 
And they're saying, well, he's, he's not Lord, not to them anyway. He's just some guy who's given them a free lunch. And yet there were the disciples. After this, we go on and we see the other disciples. Jesus says, are you guys going to leave too? And they say, no, where else are we going to go? Because you have the words of eternal life. So all throughout the, the Gospel of Mark, we're seeing people come to an understanding of who Jesus is, that he is the, the Son of God, he is the Messiah, and yet other people are rejecting this very same truth, seeing the, the power of Jesus' authority being demonstrated and being brought to a, a place where they have to choose. Are we going to embrace this, or are we just going to have a, a free fish sandwich and then be on our way? And that's the same kind of dilemma that we're all left with today, isn't it? All right, we have about one minute for any closing thoughts or questions you guys might have. Nothing, huh? The verse you just quoted, where you said, where they said, uh, we have nowhere else to go. Yeah. Do you take that as meaning, well, there's nothing better, we'll just stick around here, or as meaning, we totally believe in you and trust you. Yeah, I think it's we totally believe in you. So, yeah, that's John six sixty eight. And Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So he just said, where else shall we go? Uh, I, I guess we'll, we'll put up with you. You're, you're the best we got. That wasn't what he followed that up with. He says, no, you have the words of eternal life. So it's not just the taking the, the best of your available situation, I guess, or your, your available options. It's not uh, Alcum's razor. Like, you know, if, if you couldn't do this, and, then I guess you have to do this. No, it's, you have the words of eternal life. It means that there's one source. Yes. One God, one true God. Absolutely. All right, let's pray. God, we do thank you that you are the, the one true God, that you are the, the high and lofty one, yet the the one who made yourself contrite and lowly, who shows us compassion and love, who, uh, who realizes that we need a shepherd. God, we thank you that you are our good shepherd. We pray that you would shepherd us uh, even today, that we would be um, just soft and submissive, that we would be ready and willing to, to listen to you, that you would speak to us through your word and that you would mold us into your sheep, that we would indeed be the, the sheep of your pasture, that we would be um, your, your people who represent you well here on earth, that we would shine for you, and that we would be set apart because of the love that we have for people, because of the love that you had for us. I pray this in your name. Amen.